You know, Jay, in retrospect, it's kind of weird that nobody anticipated Onslaught. Miles, that's... that's just not true. Anyone in the Marvel Universe, I mean. Writers don't count. No, I, I figured. I'm talking about the one character who had known for years that it was coming. Professor Xavier? I mean, I guess that scans. Doctor Doom. How could he have predicted something that took literally everyone by surprise? Well, back in the Silver Age, his castle seer told him, and then they took a time machine tour through Magneto and Xavier's histories to learn all the details. Wait a minute. Doom ended up dying, uh, sort of, in that last big fight against Onslaught. Did his years of preparation after his time travel jaunt not work out? What years of preparation? Seriously? Okay, so what did Doom do after going to so much trouble to learn about a future big bad? Murdered the seer so he wouldn't have to share his cool new secret with anyone. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 349 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to the 90s-est 90s that ever did 90s. That's right, it's another Onslaught episode. I do kind of think of 1996 as like the core of the 90s. I think we're- are we in 97 by this point? We used to be so good at figuring out exactly when things happened, and I've just sort of fallen off of that. There's just this 90s amorphous blob of 90x. No. We are in August of 1996. Oh, I was getting ahead of myself. Maybe I'm just eager to get past this. But you know, I gotta say, the Onslaught stuff we've covered so far? Pretty good. So, let's see how this all goes. I think that you may have liked this week's issues a little bit more than I did. I don't think they're bad, but they, or at least two of them, feel kind of like placeholders. You are not wrong. So, this is our Nathan-based episode. We are covering the Cable and Hulk crossover, and the X-Man and X-Force crossover. The latter of those really seems like it fits Onslaught, fits what's been going on in the books. The former of those is two big dudes punching each other a lot. Yep, when you put Cable and the Hulk together, that's pretty much what you get. And there is a bit of that in Onslaught. For me, and we'll get to this later, the biggest offenders are actually the various Spider-Man books, which mostly just feature the various Spider-Man characters fighting Sentinels without knowing why they're fighting Sentinels. That's the thing about Onslaught as a li line-wide crossover. I don't know that it works for me specifically because... Onslaught is interesting when he's dealing with characters who have resonance and have relationships with him, but outside of the X-Books, he's just kind of large and bad. Yeah, you're not wrong. I mean, I do think the Fantastic Four crossovers work pretty well, given how central Franklin Richards becomes to this story. Right, but again, you're talking about a character who has an actual connection. Ah, yes. Very, very true. So, we have a, a mixed Nathan-shaped bag this time— but let's talk a little before we get into this about the structure of Onslaught. I believe we touched on this earlier. The Onslaught tie-in issues are divided into phases and impacts. We have phase and impact one, which we're doing right now, and then phase, phase and impact two afterward. So what again is the difference between phase and impact? 
Well, I think the intended difference was that uh, an issue that had Phase 1 or Phase 2 on its cover would be central to the main plotline of Onslaught, and one with Impact 1 or Impact 2 on its cover would be something that, you know, reacted to the events going on, but maybe you could skip and it wouldn't really affect the plot too much. It was more tangential. But here's the thing. We're covering two two two-part stories today, and in each of them, the first issue is Phase 1, the second issue is Impact 1. Even though the second issue is the only thing that makes the first issue make any sense as part of a story unit. And the end of the second issue of each, those are the things that carry forward into the rest of Onslaught. So I think they had a cool organizational idea and then just kind of screwed it up. Could it be that the Phase 1 books are X books and the Impact 1 books are are tie-ins from other lines? Well, that's the thing. X-Force is an Impact 1 book in this arc, so... Oh, good point. Uh, yeah. So, that's kind of weird, but you know what? We're just going to go with it. The fact is, it's a cool concept, and I appreciate the concept. Maybe the Phase 1s are just the first of the pairing, and the Impacts are the second. You know, if they stayed consistent, maybe, but uh, they, they didn't. Alright, so that's going to be one thing about Onslaught that we are unable to explain into positivity. Alas, alack... But what we can't explain is what happened previously on Slot. On Slot Lives, that's right, the dark side of the mind of Professor Charles Xavier has combined with something resembling Silver Age Magneto and manifested as an enormous armored being of immense proportion and psychic power. Onslaught's goal is to take over the minds of humanity to force them to abandon their foolish and wicked ways. Now, the details of this plan aren't really clear, but they definitely involve various powerful mutants, mostly psychic ones. Those mutants include X-Men, that's Nate Gray, the younger version of Cable who recently arrived from Earth-295, the Age of Apocalypse. After being soundly trounced by Onslaught, the X-Men have asked X-Force to look after Nate, in case Onslaught comes calling, because whatever Onslaught wants with Nate, it can't be good, right? Well, we know part of what Onslaught wants with Nate. We know that they've had one encounter before, and that specifically... Nate yanking the professor out of the psychic plane was how Onslaught figured out how to incarnate himself. Mm-hmm. And maybe Onslaught wants to learn how to look good in a net shirt. Who knows? Now, Cable, meanwhile, that's that's Nate's older counterpart from the future. But from, like, Earth-616, so the main reality. I mean, I think his reality's got a separate timeline designation, the Iskani future does. But I may be mistaken. Anyway, he was at least conceived and born in 616. Yes, so there you go. And he lives there now. Mm Mm-hmm. It's where he keeps his stuff. What's his deal? That's a complicated question, Miles. Well, I mean, like, what's his deal right now? Less complicated. After losing control of the techno-organic virus that's been consuming him since infancy, um, in fact, losing control of the virus during a fight with Nate Gray, Cable continues to have a really rough time. He's just gotten finished finished fighting Post, who's the self-proclaimed herald of Onslaught, in some issues of his own comic that we didn't cover because they're not really relevant to the tie-in, and he is still reeling from that encounter. In what peril will this pair of Nathans find themselves? Well, it's a crossover event, so we can assume it'll be a pretty big deal. Legit. Where should we start? Cable and Hulk, or X-Man and X-Force? Let's start with Cable and Hulk, and then we can end on a better note. Um, so we're going to begin with Cable number 34, Loose Cannons, as written by Jeff Loeb, penciled by Ian Churchill, inked by Scott Hanna, colored by Mike Thomas, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. 
Now, y'all remember who Ozymandias is, right? That is Apocalypse's sort of grand vizier, former rival turned slave, petrified but alive and, and forced to carve the history of humanity and some prophecies into an enormous stone column for all time until it kind of blew up. Well, in case you were concerned, um, he's, he's still carving away. I'm not sure where he's doing it now, but he is, he is, he is definitely still continuing his, his unlife's work. It's actually into the side of Alexis. Some rich jerk is going to be really mad after this. Oh my god, Ozymandias just keying prophecies into cars. I love this plan. Anyway, he's very excited that Apocalypse has recently come back, and he also is aware, because he's aware of everything going on, that Onslaught is after Cable. Um, he's also doing some very certar evocative boom noises with his chiseling, which is sort of a weird touch. That must be some pretty impressive chiseling to remind you of the god of the elemental plane of fire using star stuff to forge the sword that will end the world. Yeah, I thought it was kind of an inappropriate reference, too. Nah, well, that being said, I love Thor, so if other people love Thor and want to reference it, then hey, we have that in common. So, Ozymandias tells us a lot about what's going on, including the fact that Onslaught has possessed the Hulk to send him against Cable. That's the only place where we find out that that happens, in the middle of this big, literally, wall of text. But it kind of makes sense. I mean, Ozymandias has been on his own for millennia, I believe, and I figure somebody who's been alone for that long probably will talk to themselves a great deal, and that works out very well for we the readers. We get a lot of backstory. Do you think he ever carves like little Easter eggs into his big, big thing? Oh, I think he totally does. I think he has this like this little personal cartoon character that he keeps hiding in various places, like some kind of Where's Waldo page. Oh, I like him so much better now. Aw, Ozymandias, you're all right. He's really not. Neither is Cable. Cable, as we mentioned, has just gotten his ass thoroughly kicked by Post. Um, I want to quickly go back and, and talk a little bit about who Post is. Post is a mutant named Kevin Tremaine, and Cable actually rescued Kevin during the six-pack days, not knowing that Kevin would, you know, grow up, get extra mutated, and end up working for a fucking onslaught. We saw Post before in Adjectiveless X-Men number 50, where he fought the X-Men and muttered vague things about onslaught before having his various techno scales fall off and running away. Now... Cable is in even worse trouble, because he knows, because he's a telepath, that Hulk's coming for him. What I really appreciate is as soon as Cable realizes he's about to be under attack, he just pulls the front part of his motorcycle off, and of course the front part of his motorcycle is this combination techno-shield-slash-multi-barrel blaster. Like, do other parts pull off into different kinds of weapons, or just different kinds of random stuff? In all honesty, I was kind of disappointed that he didn't just pick up his entire motorcycle and have it turn out to be an enormous gun. I feel like there was a Devil May Cry scene where something like that happened. Uh, but regardless, yeah, Hulk shows up, just leaping into the frame out of nowhere like it's fucking invincible armor, which is my favorite kung fu movie, where every single time a character enters a scene, they jump into the frame from out of the frame, and it's great. Good, good. That's really the best way to enter a room. I completely agree. And we should talk a little bit about the Hulk here, because he hasn't really made an appearance in an X-Book in quite a while, and there is more than one of him running around. Only one at a time, because they've all got the same, they're all sharing the same body. But it's not just mild-mannered scientist Bruce Banner and the Incredible Hulk who doesn't, you know, use verb tenses. There are a number of other Hulk incarnations these days. Who are we working with? 
Well, right now, as I understand it, we're seeing Professor Hulk, which is kind of all of Banner slash the Hulk's various alters merged into one very competent, very intelligent being. Thanks to Doc Sampson, as I recall. I think so, yeah. Uh, I think Professor Hulk might have been the one that turned up during that Hulk X-Factor crossover we covered a while back. But yeah, in the past, we've also seen the Savage Hulk. That's the one you mentioned with Verb Tense Problems, who's green. That's the one who who yells Hulk Smash. Uh, Yes. And then we have Joe Fixit, who is gray. We talked about him in that episode where we covered the early Wolverine Madripoor stuff. That was the one where Wolverine stole all of Banner's clothing and replaced it all with purple pants. Good job, Wolverine. And yeah, that is that is Grey Hulk, and Grey Hulk is very smart and kind of evil. Right. And there are lots of other versions of the Hulk. Uh, I'm thinking of Al Ewing's Immortal Hulk run that is just about to wrap up that features basically all of them, and it's fascinating, but this is an X-Men podcast, so we don't have time to talk about all of that. Speaking of the fact that this is an X-Men podcast, though, there are also chunks of Hulk-specific action in this book that we're going to completely skip. Um, so if, if you are you are looking at this and saying, well, why, why didn't you mention, you know, the visions of the maestro? Not, not Jermaine. This, this is not Jan Miles explain the Hulk. This is Jan Miles explain exactly as much of the Hulk as is relevant to the X-Men. Exactly. So, Hulk shows up, and after a moment of, of sort of savage Hulk speak for fun, um, he emerges and, you know, Professor Hulk emerges and briefly tries to have a conversation with Cable before ultimately attacking. The Hulk explains... I said I came to help. I just didn't say who. And yeah, the Hulk just punches Cable into next week. And let's talk about this a little, because as we learn from Ozymandias' rambling, Onslaught is worried about Cable, since Cable is psychic, and so he sent somebody who's purely physically powerful, and whose mind is really not very vulnerable to psychic stuff, because it's the way it is, to fight Cable. But you know... I've been learning more and more about Pokemon, as I've mentioned, and fighting types are weak against psychic types, not the other way around, but you know what? Fighting types are strong against steel types, and Cable is also steel type, so I guess, I don't know, maybe it evens out. Maybe this is why this is a fair fight. Miles, I'm I'm pretty sure that neither Cable nor the Hulk is a Pokemon. Hulk says his own name a lot. I mean, you're, you're not wrong, but that would make most villains Pokemon. Exactly. Anyway, Cable tries to use telepathy to push Onslaught out of Hulk's head, but instead he transforms Professor Hulk into Grey Hulk. And Grey Hulk has a kind of bizarre take on the situation. Nice try, but I've got a job to do. It's not personal, it's business. And I ain't never backed out on a job before. Which I guess would imply that at least from what Grey Hulk slash Joe Fixit can tell, they have a deal with Onslaught. They aren't just, you know, being telepathically controlled. Or at least that's what Grey Hulk interprets it as. How much of Professor Hulk or Savage Hulk's memory um, and, and sort of understanding of events follows when, when he transforms? Uh, between forms? That is a complicated question, and one I do not feel qualified to answer as an only occasional Hulk reader. But, you know, Professor X is Onslaught, he's super powerful telepathically, so I kind of feel like he can do whatever. So he might theoretically have basically inserted himself into each of the personas, or, or given each of the personas a different sort of rationale for his presence. Yeah, I mean, makes as much sense as anything else. And... 
as you know, listeners, part of what we're trying to do here, what we've decided is, is to step in where Marvel fell short and try to actually make sense of Onslaught. So that is that is my contribution today. Oh, oh you know what we can do with this? So Professor X's son is Legion, right? Right. And Legion has dissociative identity disorder, which means Xavier probably would have studied it a great deal, which means that Onslaught would definitely have been able to focus on manipulating Hulk using that aspect of his identity. So I'm actually going to going to nix that one because Xavier thought that David was autistic. God damn it, Chuck. He doesn't actually know the difference between those things. So we can we can go with world's greatest telepath and just say that that's that's really enough for him to ride on. But I don't think we should assume that he knows jack shit about what he's doing when it comes to Legion because he very clearly does not. You know, I don't know if we should blame that on Chris Claremont or on Charles Xavier, but I suppose it works out the same, doesn't it? I blame the system. Legit. So Cable is in worse and worse shape. Remember, it's only his powers, and specifically his telekinesis, that hold his techno-organic virus in check. And when those powers are running low, when his focus is running low, it runs out of control. At this point, it's spread onto his chest, it warps his arm into a long claw. And he's been having trouble controlling it since, since fighting Nate in Cable Number 31, but now it's, it's really, really impacting him until he gets rescued from an unlikely or maybe actually reasonably likely direction because mutants with white hair stick together. That's right, it's Storm. And as she has learned from Doctor Strange, when you show up to yell at the Hulk, you need to call him Behemoth. And I was thinking about this because I first became aware of the word Behemoth in the Final Fantasy series. There are these big, muscly, purple lion things called Behemoths. But I found out not too long ago that the Behemoth... Leviathan and Ziz are these three Old Testament monsters. The right. behemoth is the land one. Yeah, Leviathan's water. Ziz is air. And so now I just want to see a watery and a flying version of the Hulk, and they can be like the Eevee evolutions and be Pokemon. Merhulk. Merhulk. I guess the Abomination kind of looks like Merhulk. He's got those fins on his face. But does he lure sailors to their doom with his sweet songs? Yes. Okay, so Storm manages to shock a flatlined cable back to life and, um, you know, feels the first stirrings of a potential romantic connection. That will be further explored in the Rob Liefeld miniseries, Major X, which is about a guy with a funny helmet and a bunch of guns who it turns out is the alternate future son of Cable and Storm. So there you go. Do we buy them as a potential couple? Yes, actually. Uh, there's been some build-up to this in Cable's solo series, and I think the chemistry is actually there. They both respect the hell out of each other, and that's the sort of central aspect of their dynamic, and the attraction just sort of builds from that, and I think it really works. Yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to agree. Major X is a very bad series, though. Well, I mean, yeah. Anyway... They team up in a ridiculous move in which uh, her lightning is going to carry his telepathy into Hulk's head because, remember, thought is, is just electrical impulses, so clearly lightning can amplify telepathy. This is like that time Nightcrawler teleported into the astral plane in Age of Apocalypse, isn't it? Kinda, yeah. Um, and it sort of works, but Hulk goes back to Savage Hulk. So, while it solves one problem, it creates a whole new one. Out of the green frying pan and into the green fire. We call this the Jason Mendoza approach to problems. 
<laughs> yeah. That brings us to Incredible Hulk number 444, Cablevision, written by Peter David, penciled by Angel Medina, inked by Robin Riggs, colored by Glynis Oliver, and lettered once again by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Medina's art is pretty cool. Like, it comes off as a little sloppy. I don't know if that's just the inks, yeah. but the musculature on the Hulk is rad. He is just this gigantic, impossible monstrosity, and it works. It's just visceral. Storm's boobs are attached to her collarbones, and it's real weird. That doesn't seem comfortable. Um, there is, again... Oh, this this was the issue, not the last one, that obviously, that has Hulk-specific continuity bits. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm very tired. Anyway, uh, we're gonna bypass them again. Well, for the first time, really, but... Um, yeah. So, this, this issue is basically a great big superhero smackdown fight. Uh, they do, however, wreck Emerald Magazine distribution, which is somewhat vicariously satisfying. I'm missing a reference here. Um... It's, it's Diamond. Ha! Yes, okay, destroy Diamond. Burn them to the ground. My comics are always late because of them, the jerks. In that fight, though, here's something important. Hulk is about to finish off Cable, because let's be real, Hulk is way more powerful than Cable, especially a Cable who's all messed up already. Hulk's strongest one there is. Exactly! But what stops Hulk from delivering the finishing blow is when he's distracted by a calendar on the wall of Emerald Magazine distribution of Betty Page. Her name is Betty. Hulk's partner's name is Betty, Betty Ross. But check this out. So in the old Rocketeer comic, the love interest was literally Betty Page. In the movie, however, Betty Page was replaced with a character of Jenny, played by Jennifer Connelly. And Jennifer Connelly would later go on in the Angley Hulk movie to play, guess who? That's right, Betty Ross. So it all comes together. How much red string did you go through there? I mean, I, I keep a lot around just for situations like this. That was fantastic. Thanks. Like, that is the work we are here to do. <laughs> Jay and Miles explain Jennifer Connolly, I guess? Great eyebrows. Anyway, inside Hulk's mind, Cable fights Onslaught, who takes the form of a massive rolling rock that yells. I kind of love this. Like, so often when we see fights in the astral plane, it's just person A and person B wearing, like, translucent gladiator armor and hitting each other with swords. When the astral plane can get into really weird battles like this, or like the big climactic fight between David and uh, the antagonist who I will not name in the Legion TV show, that is fun. It's the astral plane! Anybody can be anything, so why the hell not turn the Hulk into a big angry rock that looks like one of those Mad Balls toys from the 80s? No, 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 the rock is Onslaught. But it's got Hulk's face. Well, Hulk is sort of within it. That's true, that's true. Regardless, it's awesome. Yeah, I just think that rocks that yell at people are funny. <laughs> right. Now, during a break in the fight, Cable uh, runs, runs over to the nearby store at Guns for Fun and uh, gets a fully functional gas grenade launcher, so that happens. Convenient. America! The plan is to to use this to basically knock Hulk out, or at least disable him slightly, and to reboot his mind again and get Onslaught out. Instead, they accidentally kill him. That's not great. Although, can we call attention to the fact that Storm and Cable's dual tech to fight the Hulk in last issue and this issue was literally doing the same thing under slightly different circumstances? Like, having Storm's lightning carry Cable's telepathy into Hulk's brain? I think they figure if they just reboot him enough times, they'll eventually get the right persona. 
I mean, to be fair, in IT, sometimes you just sort of keep rebooting until something works. That's that's fair. It's like shaking a magic eight ball again and again because you don't get the answer you want. <laughs> they kill him, but that's that's okay as it turns out, because inside Hulk's mind, Cable breaks Bruce out of the Onslaught Rock, and this brings Hulk back to life as Professor Hulk with, with the Bruce personality in charge, and he is totally in to help fight Onslaught. There's this great uh, set of panels with some pretty excellent comic timing where the Hulk is just sitting there just like smoking from having been struck by so much lightning. And they ask him if he's OK. And his wide eyed, blank faced uh, face goes from one panel to the next and just coughs out a puff of smoke. And he just says, oh, perfect. It's pretty great. So, Cable and Storm and the Hulk are off to join the fight against Onslaught. We'll see more of them in Impact slash Phase 2. So, I don't know if it's just me, but this storyline felt kind of gratuitous. I think it was absolutely gratuitous, yeah. I mean, the Hulk is a character with basically no connection to anything that's going on right here. And while it does make sense that Onslaught would target Cable, like... It almost seems like he just reached into a grab bag of random Marvel characters to do so. I think really they just wanted to tie the Hulk in for more sales and figured, well, Cable's not doing anything. This also got me thinking about what I think is my very favorite Hulk and X-Men team-up story, which we haven't covered because it's an X-Men first class, which is called The Guy Who Turns Into the Hulk. I don't think I've actually read that one. It's really lovely. Also, random note, the final Silver Age issue of X-Men was the X-Men fighting the Hulk. As they are wont to do on occasion, as everyone is kind of wont to do on occasion, didn't Professor X help launch him into space once? That sounds like something Professor X would do. It's an Illuminati thing. Jerks. But that brings us to the second half of the Onslaught stuff that we're covering today, which ironically involves less Onslaught, but feels much, much more central and much more germane. Absolutely. That takes us to X-Man number 18, In the Company of Strangers. Written by Terry Kavanagh, penciled by Steve Scross, inked by Bud LaRosa and Rob Hunter, colored by Mike Thomas, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And while I was looking up how to pronounce Steve Scross's name, uh, apparently, um, according to Brian K. Vaughn, uh, that is a debate even with Steve himself, I found out that Steve Scross was actually the storyboard artist for The Matrix, which is kind of awesome. Rad. I know, right? Like, this issue was already kind of fun, and I actually really liked Steve Scross on X-Men, even though I don't overall like X-Men very much. So, um, yay. Well done, Steve. So this, this pair of issues is all about a villain we haven't seen much in this crossover yet, but I'm very, very excited to see coming in, and that is Mr. Sinister. Now, Mr. Sinister's not that concerned about Onslaught. He is mostly worried about another villain who's recently shown back up, that being his long-time ne- nemesis, Apocalypse. So when Sinister goes to Apocalypse's sleepy time pad and sees that the Apocalypse-shaped sarcophagus, the Apophagus? Apophagus, is empty, he's a little concerned. Apolophagus. Ooh, even better. Sinister says at this revelation, Next night falls earlier than calculated. Next night? Okay, wait, so that means the next era of Apocalypse being awake? Because that's actually a pretty cool name. But that begs the question, what are Apocalypse's eras where he's sleeping called? Apocasleep? Apocanaps? Apocasnooze. Nice! I find that when we make his name a prefix, it sounds kind of like alpaca. Alpacalypse. Alpacalypse. 
Well, Nate, for his part, is sitting in a corner in the Xavier School's ready room being stared at by X-Force. And this opening spread actually does a really good job visually of showing them as a team. A lot of that is the fact that their uniforms are clearly, well, uniforms. They tie them together, even with Domino and Caliban's uniforms having slightly different colors than the rest. As Nate says to himself, Such casual camaraderie and familiar ease, the strength in their numbers. Another time, another world. This could have been a haven for me. Maybe even a home. Well, as you might recall from the X-Men miniseries from the Age of Apocalypse, he was really close with alternate versions of several of these guys, Caliban and Siren in particular. That's right. Domino checks in with Nate, wonders if something's on his mind. She is a good team mom. Well done, Domino. She is not someone whose counterpart Nate remembers fondly. In fact, in the Age of Apocalypse, Domino was an assassin who killed a bunch of his friends. And I have to say, the fact that Nate can recognize that that Domino is a different Domino and doesn't just start a random fight and blow up everything around him, that shows actual character progress. Well done, Nate. You've come quite a ways in your last dozen and a half issues. Good job, kid. The team attempts to strategize as they watch the video loop of Onslaught taking out the X-Men that's stuck on the computer display like a taunt. And interestingly... It's Sunspot with his fancy-looking gadgets that checks out the tech. I'm trying to remember if we've really seen him as the team's tech guy before. I think he's definitely the only one who knows how to use email. Well, there's probably that, but it's interesting. Like, there are certain traits we tend to forget, like Nightcrawler's actually an accomplished medic and pilot, for instance. And maybe Sunspot's worked on machines before? I don't know. He doesn't seem to do it much these days. Mainly, he's just rich at people these days. He's also able to briefly bring the security monitors back online before they immediately go dark again. This time, it isn't just a juggernaut punching everything in sight in the lake. So Siren and Caliban go to investigate and are promptly knocked out by Mr. Sinister, who has shown up in the mansion to find Nate. He's very excited to find Caliban, too, because as you may recall, Caliban was one of the Morlocks. And he's since been modified by Apocalypse. This is like finding out that, like, finding one of your long-lost childhood toys and discovering that someone has, like, souped it up and made it semi-sentient. Yeah. He describes the Morlocks as, quote, The crop who reeked of my work. And this is going to go places, because remember, right now we are in the process of creating a retcon that will tell us the Dark Beast, when he came to the past of Earth-616, used Age of Apocalypse Mr. Sinister's tech to create the Morlocks as an experiment. And apparently that's why our Mr. Sinister, Sinister-616, wiped them out. Because they seemed kind of like his inventions, but clearly weren't. Now, he has he's met Caliban before, though. At least Apocalypse modified Caliban, hasn't he? Uh, yeah, yeah, Caliban showed up with the horsemen to, uh, make a deal with Sinister and Executioner's song. Sinister was in disguise, but Caliban wasn't, so I guess that's just a continuity error. Or, I don't know, I mean, Sinister is kind of like a mad scientist goldfish. I feel like he gets super excited at everything he discovers, even if he already knew it. Yeah, this may also have been his first chance to really get close contact with Caliban. Say... No, but, like, to have him effectively at his mercy. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Well, Nate Gray and the rest of X-Force arm up at Cable's Armory. They need guns. Lots of guns. 
really big guns because they're cables. And the whole time, everybody in X-Force is talking about how different this kid, Nate Gray, is from their version, from Cable. And Nate is being mature about it. I mean, he agrees, like, yeah, that's got to be weird, but he's also being very morose. He just feels so alone and so out of place, and clearly this team loves and respects the alternate version of him, and he doesn't belong at all. Poor kid. And remember, you know, he is he has he has all of the intense feelings of a drama kid raised by the players from Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. An incredibly powerful psychic raised in a theater troupe who's a teenager. Oof. There's a lot going on there. And suddenly Sinister is fighting our X-Force. He shows up, and there's a quoom, choom, choom, zzz, boom, as X-Force just blasts the crap out of Sinister. So what I'm getting here is that Cable's armory is full of, like, the cartoon gun from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I mean, that tracks, right? Yeah, pretty much. It doesn't work, though. I mean, Sinister just doesn't care. Remember, this is the guy who got seemingly disintegrated by Cyclops once, and who just sort of t 1000 his way around Bishop's blast once. Getting zapped isn't that big of a deal. He's just here for Nate. Nate, who suddenly recognizes the Earth-616 version of the man responsible for killing almost everyone he loved. Including the guy who basically raised him who he thought of as a father. Sinister has no patience for little things like emotions or dead surrogate family members. He does, however, have a really good line on the plot because he's figured out that Nate pulling Xavier out of the astral plane in X-Men number 10 is what taught Onslaught how to physically manifest, and he's absolutely right. And after a nine-panel page of dramatic headshots, Sinister and Nate's battle of psychic wills is won by Sinister. Sinister. There's this really cool picture of Sinister's laughing face inside the center of Nate's glowing psychic eye, and Sinister shuts down Nate's powers and knocks him out. You are power incarnate, it's true. Crude, uncontained power. But I, child of the atom, I am control. God, that's such a good line. I just love Sinister. He's so much fun. There's also a subplot in this issue where Threnody, Nate's kinda girlfriend who we've met before who worked for Mr. Sinister, is attacked by the Marauders and then captured by Sinister. And I want to focus on a little bit of gloating dialogue that Sinister has as he captures Threnody to use as bait. Ready or not, and I doubt very, very much that he is. The seed of summers must be harvested. The seed of... Is he talking about jerking Cyclops off? Yes. Okay. Keeps calling Nate Nate Summer Seed also. Stop saying seed, Sinister. Seed. Damn it. That takes us to X-Force number 57, In the Company of Strangers, Part 2, The Best Laid Plans. Written by Jeff Loeb, penciled by Anthony Castrillo, inked by Mark Morales, colored by Marie Javins, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And we'll actually see more of Castrillo in X-Force. He's going to do most of the next half a dozen or so issues. Despite Sinister basically putting the whammy on the entire team, Domino is actually still standing because she just happened to be out of the way. 
Yeah, like, all the rest of the team got bonked into each other, and she was just watching them fly by. Because, you know, her powers. But it's Caliban, actually, who recovers and immediately attacks. Caliban's head is on fire. Something is happening to Caliban. Something bad. And Sinister figures out what it is, which is that when Apocalypse souped up Caliban, he basically built in an anti-Sinister failsafe. Okay, this is awesome. Sinister built Cable to fight Apocalypse. Apocalypse built Caliban to fight Sinister. They're both master manipulators who are all about genetics and robotics and shit. This totally works. Oh my god, they're the kids playing with the action figures. <laughs> they totally are. Maybe that explains some of those sound effects from earlier. I gotta say, though, the actual failsafe seems to just be Caliban fighting gooder. Like, he just fights like he normally does, but I guess he does it fiercely enough that Sinister doesn't have time to use his psychic whammies and zappy blasts, and there's just this brutal close-up of Caliban's enraged face with blood spattering up from below the panel where he's slashing at Sinister. Now, this isn't really going to take Sinister out. It takes a lot more than that to really stop him, but it does give Domino time to activate the secret thing that Cable has built into his arsenal, which is a self-destruct system for the entire mansion. No, no, no. It's just for the part of the mansion that the arsenal is in, which, to be it fair, is a large part. It blows up the whole mansion. No, no, no. There's, there's a mansion left. We'll, we'll see more mansion later. Anyway, you activate the system by shooting it, which is a very Cable move. Yeah, there's just this sign that says, warning, self-destruct system, and Domino shoots it, and the whole thing blows up. Like, you'd think there would be a button, or a switch, or something? Cable man. Is his remote control just shooting various parts of the wall? Yes. I can respect that. Meanwhile, there is a member of X-Force who's not there. That is Warpath, and he has been traveling around with Risk, which I guess is the French pronunciation of the word spelled risque, so I will, I will allow this this time, I suppose. Well, I think it's risque if there's an accent aigu over the E, so I think there may be two different words. I don't know. I haven't taken French since 10th grade. I don't remember. I mean, her, her dad is Cuban and her mom is Seminole, but she chose a French codename. You know, culture and identity are complicated, so... Let's give her the benefit of the doubt. Cool. Risk it is. And Warpath tells her, you know, this isn't your concern. This isn't your problem. I'm going to deal with it. They've just gotten to the Xavier Mansion and, and, or well, they've just gotten to where the Xavier Mansion used to be and seen that, in fact, there is no longer an Xavier Mansion there. And Warpath tells Risk, you know, this isn't your problem. This is my issue. I'll deal with it. You should leave. And she says, no, if it's your problem, it's my problem, too. And Warpath is really surprised at this person standing by him. As he thinks to himself. Man, what a difference from the indifference Siren's shown me all this time. Um, James, that's just that, that Risk is interested in you and Siren wasn't. It, it's really that simple, man. Yeah, it's just a different way of saying the same thing. I suppose so. So, Sinister being completely fine, of course. Villain explains to no one in particular except the reader, I guess he and Ozymandias have that in common, that Nate Gray is his. He belongs to Sinister. Nate is what Sinister's engineered entity Cable should have been if Apocalypse hadn't sabotaged him. And therefore, by right of plot, Sinister owns Nate Gray. I mean, that's, that's pretty solidly Sinister logic. 
It totally is. Like, I tried to do this thing and it didn't work out, but in, in a universe where it kind of did work out, uh, I'm just going to take the results from that one. I mean, here's a question. Obviously, this wouldn't apply to, to people, to, to sentient entities. But, like, if a bunch of stuff falls into the, this universe from another universe, falls into the 616 from, say, 295, does it belong to the counterparts of the people to whom it belonged on Earth 295? Multiversal law? I don't know. I mean, Logan's good at maritime law. That's not the same. I assume Landau, Luckman, and Lake would know. Oh, they would totally know. Let's call Landau, Luckman, and Lake and ask them. I don't have their number. Me neither. Damn it. Well, X-Force and Nate are also fine, but separated into multiple groups. Caliban and Meltdown, for instance, are in the surprisingly spacious sewers under the X-Mansion. There's this really fun panel of Caliban thigh-deep in water, looking up over his shoulder that is a clear homage to that famous panel of Wolverine from the Hellfire Saga. It's really cool. It looks awesome. Now, Caliban is really, really upset because he completely lost control. He's clearly got triggers in his head he doesn't know about. What if it happens again and he hurts a friend? Tabitha isn't really sure what to do. Feelings aren't exactly her forte. It might be because she doesn't think anyone will see them. Or maybe, when you strip it all away, there's a scared little child somewhere inside Tabitha Smith as well. But for all her bravado, she knows in the end what Caliban is looking for. Because for years, it's nothing less than what she herself has yearned for. And she hugs him. She tells him it's going to be okay in this underground chamber lit by these completely stable floating time bombs. Her purely destructive power, her purely angry attitude, softening for this guy that just needs a friend. And all oh, my heart. At least until the time bombs explode. Yeah, okay, there is that. No, we know she can reabsorb them without them going off. It's just really sweet, and I don't know, I have a soft spot for characters who are hard asses or who hide their emotions, who finally let themselves be vulnerable for the sake of friendship. Like, that always makes me go all gooey. Now, Domino, Sunspot, and Nate try to figure out how to bring Nate's powers back and what's going on and how Sinister was able to nix out Nate's powers when he can't do that to Cable. And they realize that the key difference between them, aside from the techno-organic virus, which wouldn't make a difference here, is the, having Ascani background. That Cable grew up in, in the Ascani religion, and he's got all of those techniques really kind of hardwired into him at this point, and Nate does not. Exactly. But remember, somebody here does. Because when Sunspot got de-rainfired, when he had the rainfire persona removed from him and got to be himself again, kind of, Cable did that deprogramming using Ascani religious techniques. Which means that Sunspot has Ascani stuff inside of his brain. And he's worried that if Nate removes the Ascani philosophy from his mind, maybe he'll become Rainfire again. And there's a little editorial caption as this is all being discussed. One day we'll get to that epic tale. We promise. Bob. Yeah, like two years after this, and it'll be totally different and inconsistent with all of these plot lines and kind of dumb. Damn it. Also, like, why is Sunspot worried about Nate removing the teachings from his head? Couldn't Sunspot just tell Nate about the teachings? They actually cover that in this issue. Nate is basically a blunt instrument. He is very powerful, but he has very, very poor control. I suppose that's fair, yeah. Like, you know, Nate reads your mind to get some fact, and the next thing you know is you're singing some commercial jingle from Earth 295 in the back of your head for the rest of your life. Yeah. 
and you know they're extra catchy there. Oh god, yeah, it is a dark future, after all. Well, dark present. Siren and Shatterstar, uh, do their best to fight Sinister, and it goes about as well for them as you'd expect, which is to say not at all. There's this really weird panel of Siren's face as she uses her sonic scream powers head-on, and so it's this kind of computer-generated-looking distortion in front of her face that just makes it look like she's underwater and somebody just blew bubbles at her. Fortunately, it is Warpath and Risk to the rescue. Rescue? Ooh, I see what you did. So Risk thinks of Sinister as one of, quote, the legendary ones, and Sinister, meanwhile, is baffled that he's never heard of Risk. And I'm pretty sure this plotline doesn't actually go anywhere. Hmm, 90s. Which is a shame, because it seems potentially pretty interesting. I know, right? Well, regardless, everybody shows up, and there's a big fight, and Nate zaps the crap out of Sinister, who suddenly says he just wants to talk, which, you know, dude, maybe you could have opened with that instead of knocking everybody out. Damn it, Nate. Wait, Sinister is also named Nate. There are three Nates in this episode. It's a Nate-tacular. Yeah. Sinister says, look guys, all I want to do is stop Apocalypse. I promise. Nate, read my mind. You'll see that it's true. Of course, it is a trap. Once he's got all that psych psychic energy from Nate reading his mind, Sinister manages to turn it around and boomerang it back at the rest of the team, knocking them all out, and Sinister slings Nate over his shoulder and heads out. Saying? The end. Now we can begin. So there's our second onslaught tie-in duology from Phase Slash Impact 1. And I kind of like this one. I think this actually furthers the stories of both X-Force and X-Man. And while, like you said, it doesn't directly, directly tie into the Onslaught stuff, it will. I mean, it, it brings Sinister very centrally into the story, and it's also just fun. Yeah, it's a perfectly appropriate tie-in. Mm-hmm. So, well done X-Force and X-Man, Cable and Hulk, you had some fun stuff, and you let us talk about that Betty Page thing, so you got that going for you. We're out of Nate's now, and that means that it is time for your questions. Jake asks on Twitter, there is a weird master mold head on spider legs in this spread from an X-Men Where's Waldo style book. Is it just from this one book or also the comics? Okay, so the scan that Jake sent is freaking amazing. Maybe we can put that up in the visual companion to this episode. The X-Men are fighting Sentinels, but like also Gambit's playing cards with Santa Claus and a caveman, and Disney's Alice from Alice in Wonderland is infringing copyrights by being there since this was pre-buyout, and there's a Sentinel protecting the three little pigs from the big bad wolf, and there are ballerinas with, with jetpacks. It's great! Anyway, this rung a bell for both of us, so we looked around, and you are right, it is absolutely from the comics. Specifically from X-Factor number 14. That's the one where Cyclops fights Master Mold after Master Mold falls to Earth from space. And coincidentally, this issue is also one of the first mentions, if not the first mention, of The Twelve, which, boy howdy, we'll get to that at some point relatively soon. So, when Cyclops zarks Master Mold apart very thoroughly at one point, it quickly builds itself metal spider legs from scrap metal and walks around with those spider legs under its head and a big beefy arm sticking out the side like Trogdor. But that's not the only place where you might have seen the head on spider legs sentinel. Right, because Master Mold's severed head on spider legs was also in season four of the 90s X-Men cartoon. Uh, you see, at the end of season one, Professor X filled the Blackbird with TNT and flew it into Master Mold's body and his head popped off. 
And also, there's a master mold with spider legs under its severed head toy in the, and I love this name, X-Men Secret Weapon Force Power Slammers line. That is some pretty great Mad Libs there. I know that Secret Wars was named Secret Wars because Marvel did some focus groups on what words young boys liked, and I feel like they just did this, but used more of them. Wait, wait, wait. X-Men Secret Weapon Force Power Slammers. Miles, did did this have something to do with Pogs? I'm gonna say... definitely. Joshua asks via email... I recently took a stand against the arguments of, if they want representation, they should make new characters, especially in terms of the LGBT plus community. I'm 35, and only in the last five years have I realized that I wasn't head, so to me, the concept of an established character realizing that they aren't either seems so real. What's your take on current characters becoming part of the LGBT plus community instead of creating new characters to fill that role? I know characters like Wiccan and Hulkling are freaking adorable, but it doesn't really speak to an experience I have had whereas Iceman does. So Joshua... I 100% agree with you. Um, My experience with this was working out that I was trans and coming out in my 30s, but we are far, far, far from the only people in that boat. In fact, I think it's a pretty common thing, more so with with our generation and earlier ones than with with current kids who are growing up with access to a lot more in the way of, of terminology and just information than we did. But I think it's really important, and I think specifically having Iceman come out was a really significant move for that reason and a number of others. It's very, very easy to write new characters out of continuity or sideline them in ways that it's much harder to do with, for instance, one of the Charter X-Men. And I'm actually going to link in the Visual Companion to an article I wrote about this, specifically about Iceman coming out um, around the time that it happened. But I, I continue to feel very, very strongly that that was a good move and that with older Iceman in particular, it was handled narratively really, really well in ways that very, very much resonated with my experience and the experiences of a number of other folks I've talked to and heard from. So Jay, I know there's been some talk around this, and I believe you've written about it yourself, about how one of the downsides of there being so few instances of this is that whenever it happens, it's expected to sort of stand in for all coming out experiences. Exactly, and I think that's part of why it's so important to take both routes, to have new characters who are coming in who are... are envisioned as and written as queer or trans from the start, and to have older characters going through sort of that arc and that self-realization, because to get better representation, there, there needs to be more. There's not one single right way to do it. There's absolutely value in both. Like, you can't really replace either version. And if there's anywhere that's especially appropriate to see more of that, it's in freaking X-Men. I mean, come on, people. Yeah, Absolutely. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of the tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters or concepts, and the mic today goes to my beloved favorite, Mr. Sinister. One spends multiple human lifetimes splicing genes and painstakingly researching bloodlines, cloning a dead mutant here, altering the memories of an orphan there, and one's work is half-ruined by a techno-organic virus and a bit of time travel. But now, I see a new version of Nathan Summers in this... X-Man. With better powers, better hair, and worse everything else. Clearly, he belongs to me. 
After my long labors, I deserve to possess this delightfully awful teenager. And similarly, years from now, I will combine the DNA of mutants from Earth and the Inhumans that make their home on the moon. And thus, Weston Vic, you as well are mine. For you yourself stand on this Earth and often bask in the light of the moon, do you not? You are not so different from my mutant and human abominations. And thus do you belong to Sinister. And of course, my oft-cloned and recloned marauders were the product of decades of trial and error, of finding just the right combination of traits to construct the perfect killers, born better after each failure in death. Scholler. You too were born once, were you not? And so you qualify as a marauder as well. And thus belong... to Sinister. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week it's Hawk Talk, but in two weeks we'll be back with yet more Onslaught. In the 350th episode of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. Written by Terry Kavanagh, penciled by Steve Scross, inked by Bud LaRosa and Matt Hunter, colored by Mike Thomas. No, Rob Hunter. What'd I say? You said Matt Hunter. <laughs> Matt, you have so many skills. <laughs> wow. I, I just emailed Matt today, so I was typing his name. Um, anyway, let's start that over.